You're listening to Spool and Tell, a very dorky movie podcast. We take you now to a random conversation already in progress. That was a guy who was just too startled to do anything because I was like, get your hands off her. And I was like, I don't know how close I came to actually being shot that night. Probably not that close, but you never know. That's my story to start us off. Okay. An interesting place to start. I was just going to talk about the new Disney movie, Godmothered, but all right, What's sure. Godmothered? I've never heard of Godmothered. I hadn't either. The trailer, as we're recording this, the trailer just dropped. It is a movie about a school of fairy godmothers, and uh, its latest graduate is going off into the world to try to prove that the world still needs fairy godmothers. A very interesting premise that they clearly thought of before uh the 2020 well before 2020 like before all the chaos like now give me the chance to wish for any little wish (laughs) like i don't need the big wishes just any little wish and it's like yeah of course we need fairy godmothers right now like this premise is insane yeah um it's 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 a hard sell it's a hard sell to to actually get us to think that someone would be like you know i feel like most of my basic needs have been met. That doesn't really sound like someone in 2020. But you see, here's the thing. My bet is there's been so much turmoil, whichever aisle you land in politically, there's been turmoil for everyone, both sides. Sure. That it might be that release that everyone needs. I mean, it doesn't look good, and I think it's going straight to Disney+, Plus. but we'll see. You know, we'll see. It, it Like, at first, I was like, this must be one of those things where they shot it many years ago. It doesn't yeah. feel like something that would come out of the Disney studio for theaters now. Something like Magic Camp um, on Disney+, Plus, where they shot it in 2017, initially for a 2018 theatrical release, then seemingly looked at the movies that they were releasing in theaters in 2018 besides that one, which were uh, Black Panther, Infinity War, Solo, Mary Poppins Returns, uh, Incredibles 2, like basically all of these movies that were just going to take a wrecking ball to the box office and, you know, lines around the, I mean, I I can't remember what the situation was with Solo. Like it was considered a relative flop, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like people didn't go see Solo. Okay, so let me, let me ask you this. Because the yeah. listeners are probably going to... The listeners of our podcast will probably know this movie. So which do you think would be worse? Okay. Fairy Godmothers or Charlie Sheen's hit movie, Food Fight? Um, I mean, is that even fair? Because Food Fight <laughs> was the one that was stuck in, in, in development hell more than just about any other film I oh know gosh, of. Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, like, it, it was just such a long time of people dragging on, forcing it to be finished. I mean, it's always cheating to use an animated movie as your standard for a bad movie, almost, just because animation is one of those fields where, if it's done well, it can be one of the best, most timeless, most powerful films ever, and yet animation gives us a lot of our worst films. Like, right. our worst by far and away. Absolute garbage that is just painful to look at. Because I would love if, to if see, you point a camera at a real-life thing, I can normally stand to look at it. But if you do a terrible rendering in a computer of something that just doesn't look right, yeah, it's, then it's, 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 it's hellish. Yeah. So <sighs> I would love to hell, see an anim- I would love to see an oh. animated... Yeah, I would love to see an animated version of The Room. Um, because you hate yourself? 
<laughs> just to see it. Okay. I mean, that's all. I don't need. Listen, you're the academic between us. I'm the just the guy who likes movies because they're great or bad. You know? Or that or bad, great or bad. Um, I guess. See, I yeah, I like Citizen Kane and Biodome. So you know. Yes, you you do like Biodome. We have established that. Um, let's talk about a Christmas Carol, Nick. Yes, let's talk <laughs> about it. Uh, and okay. also, uh, should we uh, introduce the show? Sure. Why not? So, okay. uh, I'll start. Okay. <coughs> JD's drinking on the job again, ladies and gentlemen. I'm fine. He's warming fine. up the computer, and he's going to be going in three, two, one. Hi, everybody. I'm JD Hansel. And I'm Tiddly Winky Binky Boy. He's Nicholas Lemon. And this is a movie podcast in which one of us forces the other one to watch a compelling movie that, you know, positively or negatively had an impact on us uh, and that we think just makes for a fascinating discussion. A great, even if the movie is not great, the movie is a great contribution to the discourse on movies. You see. For instance, one of the movies that we watched for the first time for me was Dragonheart. And I feel that was a very... We did not watch Dragonheart. Try again. We watched Dragon Slayer. Oh my gosh. Names are bad. Okay, we watched let me try that Beastmaster. Again. Uh, wait, did we watch Beastmaster? No, we did not. We watched oh Dragon God. Slayer. We watched, we watched Conan the Barbarian. Oh my gosh, I have not actually seen Conan the Barbarian. This That's opening okay. is going really well. Believe it or not, neither of us are drunk. It's just one of neither those. Neither of us are drunk. We are just naturally loopy. Yeah. Um. So we watched Dragon. Lay heart. Uh, sure. <laughs> and that was a very interesting conversation. We were able to... Um, I didn't like it as much as you did, I don't think. Nope. You did um, not. And and then we also did the big chill as well, which I think was a vi- much more interesting, in-depth conversation. That one hasn't come out yet. But yes, that's a more serious one because this is our um, Christmas episode. Yay! Yay! Merry do, Christmas. Do you want to do uh, that whole episode? section again, J.D.? Do you want it, uh, the whole thing? No, just that section about what we've watched for after you took... No, you... no, no. You think I'm going to let you get out of that? Oh, my gosh, no. You think oh. I'm going to let you get out of all the ribbing you're oh. going to get, all the comments that are going to be Fine. like, what is wrong with Nick? Fine. You think that he didn't even you're... know how to record this episode before they started. Oh, my gosh. Okay, to explain why I'm this way, because I'm not usually this way most of the time. Uh, before, I'm not the most techie person, Nick, uh, to say the least, and I'm using equipment that I've used like once Nick. or twice, Nick. and the person who I got the equipment Nick. from, and I, I I had been trying like 20 times Nick. to get them on the phone, Nick. like I phoned, left messages, and Skyped, and, or uh, te- uh, texted, and, uh, <clears throat> and they wouldn't pick Nick. up, they wouldn't pick up, and so like here in Toronto... At the time of recording this, we are going to be probably going down into a lockdown tomorrow. And so for me, I was like, and we've had a bit of, uh, you know, some unrest here. Working. What? Now what? you hear me. Yes, I, just I hear said you. Nick about 10 times trying oh, to get I didn't your hear attention. That. I was Sorry. just going to inform you as someone who has recorded podcasts more often than you and for a longer time than you. Yes. That uh, explaining the technical problems that you've had yes. at the start of the show at length is 
the worst thing to do in the first few minutes of a podcast? But, no, I want to tell them. They will love it. I'm special and finish and I'm, I'm, your story quickly. My uncle owns the theater. It's his favorite story. You have 30 seconds to finish. Go. (laughs) And so I was very concerned that this person was hurt because there's been a bit of unrest here at the time of recording because we're going to lockdown and numbers are going up. So I finally got him on the phone and what happened? They had just turned their sound off. And so we couldn't record this until I got it technically worked out and it's all worked out. And now we're going to talk about a Christmas carol and the wonderful hell surreal scene. Stop. Thank you. All right. Yay. Where's my bell? Where's my bell? I lost my bell. Hold on. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. The okay. There's the bell. Yay. Found the bell. All right. So this is a movie that is, it's, it's an unusual choice for me because generally with this show, I like to propose movies that I have seen before that Nick has not. This was a weird choice because I actually pitched a movie that I had only seen parts of. And this was sort of my first time seeing it myself, which is why it was odd that I chose it, but I knew the contents of the movie because I know this story and I particularly know this version of this story because I have seen the musical, like the stage musical adaptation of this film. This is the 1970 film Scrooge. There are other movies called Scrooge, uh, like the famous one with Alistair Sim that was just a more straight-laced uh, Christmas Carol adaptation. Not a musical. Uh, Also a British film, I think, from like 1950. Uh, Some people think that one's the best. Some people like the 1930s version of A Christmas Carol. Some people like Bill Murray's film Scrooged. It's the same title as this, except with a D at the end, because he's been Scrooged, you see. They Scrooged Bill Murray. That's what they did. And then there's one of my favorites, Mm -hmm. which is the Henry Winkler A Christmas Carol. Uh, and that, it's an that American Christmas an Carol. An American Christmas Carol, which I've actually yeah. never seen and hadn't really you heard haven't? much about. I'll watch it this year. Um, but par- I didn't really want to spoil it because I know that that's kind of your main basis of, of comparison going into this. And so I kind of wanted to let you talk about it uh, without me knowing all the little details. My basis of comparison is mostly Muppet Christmas Carol, which okay. I've seen how many billions of times? I don't know. It's an amazing movie. It's astonishing to me that it's a director's first film. It is good and, for being a director's first film. I mean, right? And then, like Michael Caine didn't know that it was Brian Henson's first film when he worked on it. Like he couldn't tell until somewhere in the middle of production, he overheard it or asked or something. Um, it's pretty wild, and it's more and more. Muppet Christmas Carol is kind of becoming the go-to adaptation of a Christmas Carol for nerds like us. Uh, in part because it is a fun Christmassy musical with great Christmassy music. Uh, And then there's another popular one from the 80s, and then you've got all the animated ones from, uh, let's see, Robert Zemeckis did a mocap one with Jim Carrey. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've never seen it. I don't really want to. It sounds miserable. I think I'll have a terrible time. I will be watching it this December. Um, Let's see. There's a Flintstones one. Yep. And then there's Uh, also going back to the classics, which is the book. Where it originated right. from. Don't um, step. Don't neglect Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Well, by UPA. Well, we can talk about UPA. I lo- I adore them. We can talk about UPA for ages, yes. and that'll be its own episode someday. The UPA special. But then also, what's amazing is the graphic novels that have come out in recent years of oh. a Christmas Carol. They've taken it and they've really like also for Frankenstein and other ones. They're really bringing the the book 
into modern times. And so when you when you told me about this version, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, Scrooged? Because I saw that when it came out as a kid. It was like one of those things where it's like the California Raisins claymation Christmas stuff. It's like one of those things you saw when you and like, no, not that. It's a musical. I'm like, why are we covering a stage version of a movie? Like, I, I'm, you like, I'm actually... No very confused that your brain lumps together the Bill Murray comedy Scrooged with the California Raisins singing in the Will Vinton claymation Christmas special. It's just the way it works. It's my brain is my brain. It's okay. Like, I mean, I'm, don't again, get me wrong. That's a great movie that would indeed be improved by the California Raisins singing to Bill Murray. But I mean, I'm the guy who likes Citizen Kane and Biodome. So why they fit together in my brain, who knows? Uh, who knows? But so when you said no, there was a musical version of mm-hmm. Scrooge. I was like, yeah. oh, is this going to be like my my version of like the big chill? When you hear it, you're going to hear there's a very much a difference between our initial opinions. Yeah. And you're like, no, no, no. It, and it's like it has Albert Finney and uh, all these classic British actors and I was like, oh, okay, because my family's British, British ancestry. So I grew up around a lot of that British mentality. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. You know, and I was like, oh, is it going to be like Daddy Warbucks where it's like he's like speak singing kind of? Or is this? And I was thoroughly, thoroughly delighted with this movie. Um, and I have mixed feelings about this movie. I really? Am, like from scene to scene, I'm constantly waffling. And it's, I mean, my, I have read A Christmas Carol. I, I started rereading it before this, but didn't really have time to finish. Um, but I read it for high school and I saw, I've seen this on stage twice, the okay. stage version of this based on this movie. And what got me thinking about this film as something that should be covered on a podcast at some point is first of all, just the opportunity to discuss all that there is with the story of A Christmas Carol, because it's it's kind of crazy that we keep coming back to this story and doing it over and over and over again, often in very similar ways. And yet it's always comfort food. Like it's, it's just for some reason, this strangely structured story always works and you can just keep remaking something that was written in the 1800s. Um, and, and mainstream audiences will buy another adaptation of a piece of classical literature that they ordinarily wouldn't read. But then also just the fact that this has had the legacy that it has had. Uh, this particular adaptation, I mean, if we even want to say that it's had a legacy, because to me, like, I didn't know that this was a movie until just recently. It was a year or two ago when for the second time I saw, I saw a community theater production of Scrooge, the musical. Uh, my uncle was in it. I think he, I think he was in both that I've seen because I come from a family that does a lot of musical theater. Um, and my mother was in a production years ago. And so I was talking about it afterwards with my grandparents who went to see the show uh, uh, with us those, uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago now. And I said, that was a kind of a strange take on the story in some ways, right? Like a lot of it's about the same. Most of it's very straightforward and a lot of it's straight from the book. But then there were some weird choices. And apparently it's all based on a movie from 1970. And my grandmother was like, well, yeah, of course, you know, the, the usual Scrooge movie. It's the normal version of A Christmas Carol. And I'm like, no, I'm 
1971. It's in color. It's with Albert Finney. And she's like, yeah, that's the that's the version of a Christmas Carol that we've seen. It's the one that's on TV all the time. It's it's the one, right? And it just blew my mind to then go online and find that a lot of people think of this as their go-to adaptation of A Christmas Carol and don't really know about the ones I think are more popular that are in black and white, the classics from the classical Hollywood period, from uh, the one from the mid-30s and uh, the one with Alistair Sim in uh, 1950 or so. And so I'm like, how is this as big of a deal as it is, if it really is a big deal? And also, what's the deal with its home video distribution? Because for something that gets aired on TV a lot, it's odd that the ownership isn't more locked down, such that it's been able to creep up on YouTube twice. Like, there are just two copies of it on YouTube and a copy of it on my library's streaming service. But home video rarely... They, like, they rarely can do DVD or Blu-ray releases because of music rights. And when they do DVD or Blu-ray releases of this, they cut songs. Like, stuff has to get cut out because they just can't get all the rights. And I guess for me, what makes this weird is particularly the take on the character of Scrooge himself. Because I am used to an Ebenezer Scrooge that is portrayed in a way that's fairly Shakespearean. Mm-hmm. And uh, very, I don't know, stately, dignified. He's like an intimidating figure. So when you watch A Muppet Christmas Carol in particular, partly because most of the citizens are puppets, so they're very (laughs) short, while Ebenezer Scrooge, by comparison, is very tall, he's sort of just like walking over the town. And he's someone who everyone is afraid of, everyone talks about uh, behind his back. He's just this... uh, a force to be reckoned with. He's a figure that everybody kind of has to deal with and he's scary, he's intimidating and when he's coming to collect your debt, you know, the people are are concerned. Like, you're supposed to I don't know, I think, because Patrick Stewart once played this part, right? Like, that's the kind of actor that I expect to handle the role of Ebenezer Scrooge and I think over time, since Muppet Christmas Carol, our conception of who Michael Caine is as an actor has kind of changed so that now he is kind of the dignified British actor who comes in for the very special cameo part to deliver some important exposition. And now when you see him as Scrooge, maybe more so than would have been the case in the early 90s, you think of him as kind of a big deal who's bringing gravitas. And then you get this. A movie whose take on Scrooge is just kind of this shriveled up whiny old man um, who's kind of gross and not really very intimidating, just annoying. Like, you don't take him as seriously. I have a couple theories on why this works. Okay. And this this may be a little weirding, sound weird initially, Mm -hmm. but I think think why this lasts is it's about love, it's about narcissism, Mm -hmm. and he plays it very American. And what I mean by that is, as you said, British performances of this are generally that very stately, you know, thing. Whereas what he's doing, I see him being very emotionally expressive, which is a very American way to go about things. And I don't mean that negatively. Um, I can already tell you like this movie a lot more than I do. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> like, I kind of came and the into thing this. Is, I, I, think, I think when I say narcissism, too, and I don't mean that in a bad way, I think what we see in this, in the story itself, 
right um in general but also this is we see a literal redemption a little a literal personification of hell okay and whether you believe that in a christian view or just a metaphorical view none of us i think really wants to end up there none of us wants to have punishment for what we've done in life sure and i think seeing the and we'll we'll talk more about that scene but i think seeing that coupled with his emotionality in this i think it kicks into our narcissism to go well if he can be that way and be redeemed maybe we can too yeah it is a story that is relentlessly hopeful that yes. takes uh, it, and it's those a, are the stories I love. Those are the ones that I yes, just adore. Of course, I mean it's a bold story in that it its whole premise is you are going to follow the worst person on earth. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Ebenezer Scrooge, terrible person. He's your guy. You're gonna stick with him for not just this phase of his life, but you're gonna go back earlier into his life and deal with him as a young. Uh, as a, what's a good word? Just a Scrooge. Yeah. yeah. Like you're dealing with you're dealing with Scrooge in various times in various phases of his life, and it's all Scrooge. Like how much Scrooge can you take? Um, and yet it works because we're rooting for the good in Scrooge to win out over the bad in Scrooge, and that's a different approach to. Uh, a narrative, since most approaches to narrative, at least in American films, are there's a good guy and a bad guy. You vote for the, or you root for the good guy, basically to beat the bad guy. And this is just no. Did you just, did you just say you vote for the? I was trying to say root. Were you trying to um, put something out there politically? Vote no. for the. The election's <laughs> over. <laughs> the election's over. Um, we're not going to talk about it anymore. Okay, but I already, think you're right. I think we already I think have the big chill episode coming up that's going to deal with with all that, with all our thoughts on <laughs> boomers and elections and stuff. So, but but see, the other thing for me, someone my age, um, what what really hits home is seeing him talk, be around his younger self, right, and having absolutely no influence over it. Now, and, and is that and what, once you get to a certain age, you sort of go. Oh, I just wish I could talk to my younger self and say, you know, like, it'll be okay or don't do this or, you know, ignore it. And, and I think that's some of what, why it resonates is you, you, you're, you're hopeful that Albert Finney's character, because at a certain point when he sees the present, you see the human spirit kick in. Sure. And you're so hopeful that you genuinely go, oh, I so hope he changes. You know how it ends, but you hope he changes. Right. And that's the other interesting thing here is that we all know how this story ends and yet we'll keep watching different adaptations all the time. Like it does. I'll put on Mickey's Christmas Carol, even though I know how it ends. Like uh, you show me whatever version of Christmas Carol you want. It doesn't matter that I know everything that happens. I'm here for it. Um, And I think another thing that's helped at last as a story, I mean, not this film in particular, but the story, uh, you know, again, for a story that was written in the mid to late 1800s. It is striking that its sense of structure still works because it very nicely and neatly fits into a Hollywood formula where you get all the exposition up front in an act one and then past, present, future with future being that, you know, that pit of despair, right? All hope is lost moment. And then you come out of that right into... 
uh, w- although it's also sort of the climax, but then you come right out of that into the, the third act resolution, and it's all structured very nicely and neatly in a way that you can just kind of do over and over and over again, and you can play with, you can make some parts longer, some parts shorter, and everyone understands the format. Like, even though it was written in uh, five uh, chapters or five staves, as they were called, it still works as a three-act structure kind of thing, uh, which really makes it malleable. But then that also raises the question, if it's really hard to lose when you're adapting this story, what is the value of doing yet another adaptation? And so I kind of look at this and ask, what is this really bringing to the table that other adaptations didn't? And with that in mind, I'm kind of looking at it a few ways. For one thing, I'm looking at the performance of Scrooge himself, which in this I really don't care for. And I think it's very silly. It's very cartoony. And my brother was watching this one with me um, because he had never seen it before and only vaguely remembered seeing the musical many, many years ago. And he said, at, at, like, at times he's doing it a little more seriously, and he's, you know, trying to do a little bit of a low voice and make it somewhat intimidating, but he goes through a lot of moments where he's pretty much just Terry Jones in drag in Monty Python. Like, oh, yes! Oh, it's the milk of human kindness! It's so good! Can I have another cup? It's just so ridiculous like it's like he's trying to be as annoying as possible and i don't want my scrooge to be annoying it's one of the tricky things about this character that he says a lot of very cynical things and those cynical things can be striking and make you pause and go whoa if they're delivered by someone who has the gravitas of a politician saying those things but if it comes from a little nebbish saying you know well if they'd rather die than let them do it and stuff like that, like the, those really big lines in this that make you go, oh, wow, Scrooge evil? Uh, Scrooge maybe doesn't have a soul? Uh, how horrible, how heartless can you be? Like, it's when Scrooge has those lines that, from someone who's important, it's terrifying to hear those. From a Citizen Kane figure, you know, from Charles Foster Kane or any larger-than-life character, that's scary to hear. But if it's from a little squeamish you know, wrinkled up nebbish, then it's like, okay, so this is just a jerk on Twitter. Like, he's got the mentality of a middle schooler. Like, he's just an a-hole who you can kind of ignore. You don't really need to give this guy the time of day. Well, see, here's... here. I, I want to back up a bit mm-hmm. and and say that I think something that I absolutely loved is the opening title sequence. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and go through the stuff that happens in the movie in order like a normal movie podcast. Go ahead. So for the those that aren't aware, that's the uh, famous illustrator Ronald, Ronald Cyril. I believe I'm pronouncing yes. his name correctly. Um, and he his artwork, when you open it, it's just, it looks like pen and ink and watercolor. Yep. And to anyone who does any form of drawing or artistic, those two things, when done well, look amazing. And when they're done badly, they look not great. And these look beautiful. They look like works of art on their own. And and what's stunning about it is it really, I found myself being really drawn in because it is such a different take on the opening credits. Uh, well, I mean, again, I'm wondering what take you're used to, because there's a lot of stuff here that you seem pretty impressed by that I think someone who's very familiar with the usual takes on this story 
uh, might not be as impressed by. But this is, again, I don't know how much of this version of the story is in the version that you're more familiar with. How much is in an American Christmas Carol? Because I assume well, it doesn't have an opening like this in terms of the drawings, no. which are no, very No, no, no. Cool. It's a very simplistic opening. I, I've seen, like, all of the ones you mentioned. I've read the book. Um, I've seen Muppet Christmas Carol. I've seen a, the majority of them out there. And, and for me, and maybe this is where I'm at at this point in my life, I find it a very uplifting opening. And yeah, I think this is sort of uh, as answering the question of in a movie musical, and this is sort of the first time that you and I have talked about a movie musical that isn't a Disney one. So it's right. the first time we're talking about a movie musical that is approached as a musical, not as an animated film that has music because all of Disney's stuff had music, right? Like, there's the question of where do you put an overture or where do you put, like, an opening song? And on stage, they just have the chorus come out and sing the song that you hear over the opening credits, which really sets the tone and puts you in Christmas. And you have all the very Christmassy colors there, and it's something that whenever that whenever you see that show, no matter what time of year it is, and they always do it around Christmas time, um, it really puts you in the mood. In this case, the drawings don't really look very Christmassy. They look very Dickensian, but the colors are not very Christmassy. It all looks a little bit washed out. Uh, some of them actually do. Like, the, the Fezziwig party drawing looks pretty jolly and, and, you know, red and green and stuff. It looks like a proper Christmas party, but a lot of it's very gray. And at, at first, when I saw this, I didn't know who did the illustrations. I didn't know that it was anyone important. I was just thinking, this is very similar to the... Uh, original 1960 version of Little Shop of Horrors, which is not a musical, unlike its later adaptation, um, that opens with very a very simple hand drawing of the city because they truly, for that film, did not have time or money to do an exterior shot, so they just use a drawing as their exterior shot, and it's a very cheap way to do it. For this, I was kind of surprised when I looked at it, and I'm like, this looks like it was put together fairly cheaply, right? At least the, the opening with the drawings, and then it turns mm -hmm. out... No, they got a real proper artist for this who probably yeah. cost them a pretty penny and he turned in good work. But the tone that this then sets is one that's kind of gloomy and dreary. And it's speaking to a particular moment in film history when the very existence of the musical was in question. Because this is after the whole, you know, 50s and 60s era of movie musicals had kind of fizzled out. This is after classical Hollywood is done, new Hollywood has come in. And you had films just before this, like Hello, Dolly, that were massive flops, like Hello, Dolly infamously tanked, even though over time it's become a classic that a lot of people really love. Um, and, but, you know, people were kind of tired that people were kind of tired of the splashy, colorful musical and just generally Hollywood's whole approach to movies, which is we're going to make it big. We're going to make it fun. We're going to make it colorful. We're going to make it epic. It's going to be a grand musical spectacle. extravaganza, right? They were doing the spectacle thing. And by and large, movie audiences were just kind of tired of that. And yet Hollywood kept trying to do it. And one of the ones that was sort of a critical darling, sort of, in uh, the late 1960s was Oliver, based on the Charles Dickens story of Oliver Twist. Mm -hmm. And the sets in that look the same as the sets in this. Like at first I thought this must have been the same production company using the same sets, trying to cash in on their success with Oliver and just say, well, they liked one Dickens story as a musical, we're gonna do another. And when you get to the song, Thank You Very Much, 
it sounds very much like consider yourself one of us. And it's the same sort of staging where it's like, we're going to have a little party, a carnival in the streets of old England, marching to this fun, you know, I mean, every great musical has to have a march, right? Sure, every course. great musical has to have a march. Um, let's see, it, like obviously uh, 76 trombones, right? Yeah. The music man. Um, Greece. I know what, it's, what's it's the march in Greece. The, the ending. Uh, wop ba loo bop a wop bam boom where the, they're at the fair. That could, that's sort of an abstract version of a march. Well, it's the same. It's definitely the celebratory scene that's sort of a carnival scene that you get in most musicals. There's normally some version of that, but that's not always where the march goes. That's often where waltzes go, maybe, if it's like a, a carousel-type music. The march is sort of a specific musical structure uh, that I feel like Mary Poppins has one, right? It's... um. I guess yeah. spoonful of sugar is a march. Yeah. Um, well, see with with this, I I think you're you're looking at this a little off. Okay. Is nothing. I'm not going to disagree with anything you've said at all. I think I think academically you're fairly bang on. But what I'm going to ask you to do is look at this as an abstract piece of art. Okay. Go on. <laughs> I think the opening mm -hmm. promises what the movie delivers with sets and design and performances. It is an abstract performance of A Christmas Carol. What do you mean abstract? What about well, are you Well, are you familiar with abstract art? Vaguely. Yeah. So basically, for those that aren't, abstract art is coming from a, a time, um, and I'm probably going to get a bit of this wrong, but it follows um, when you, you, artists had to be very literal in what they drew. Um, to 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 a great degree. Um, this is preceding Andy Warhol. This is, um, and and so they just kind of got sick and tired of having to stick to the rules, right? And so abstract art is a, re a revolt against right. traditional artistic rules. And, and it so sort what of, they it would sort do, of paves the way to modern art, basically, right? Correct. It kind of paves exactly. The way to modern yeah. Sure. So, are you when um, you say abstract, are you specifically talking about the the drawings at the beginning? You mean the artwork at the beginning, or the film as well? Well, not not just the artwork. I'm talking about the set design. I'm talking about some of the performances. You look at them as kind of cartoonish, whereas what I see no, is I don't from, look at the sets in this as cartoonish. No, no, the performance. Sorry. Oh, yes, the performances. You look at the performance. I, kind of I misspoke yes. there. You look at the performances as a bit cartoonish. Sure. And what I'm seeing is taking the rules of what Scrooge is and deconstructing them a bit and going, do, does Scrooge really have to be that British staid performance or can they can Scrooge be a bit more of that, you know, as you say, nebbish, cartoonish sure. version? And I think this movie was playing with it a bit. Um I'm not saying that this was a revolution in filmmaking. I just think that they decided to play around with what the idea of Scrooge was. Um, and I think the opening credits promise that. And I think throughout the movie, it, it f is fairly consistent with that. Hmm. So that's the, that's the view I'm looking at it from. And that's an understandable framework. But you have to remember that, again, I've seen a lot of different takes on this. And I know you have two, but it's hard to justify these performances as just trying to be, just trying to evoke the general idea 
of Scrooge or the general ideas of their characters or, or Christmas Carol. I don't, I think that in each case, it is sort of a unique take and choices were made to handle the character in a very specific way. And in most cases, the characters are actually fairly grounded. I've seen the characters played just as broadly many times before, but you can do very broad, over-the-top takes of these characters, or rather abstract takes on these characters, uh, that are still better performances than this. Oh, listen, don't, don't mistake what I'm saying as these are phenomenal performances. Okay. I'm not at all saying these are phenomenal performances. I'm just saying that I think that what they're doing is playing around with the characters. Um, That's kind I, I of think what that, all acting is, though. No, I know, but when, when you have Scrooge played a very cert, very specific way mm-hmm. for decades and decades and decades... You're saying this like is even trying the to Henry, be a new take. Hen- yeah, it's like even the Henry Winkler performance yeah. is, is, is very much an Americanized version of the British Scrooge. Well, what I, what I was actually going to say earlier is that even though I thought this was surely just the, came, the same company that made um, Oliver, which is, you know, a pretty good musical, even though it's not my, my favorite movie musical, and I think that's it's one that's usually better enjoyed on stage, I do think that it's worth noting that this was produced by a different company. It was really produced by a short-lived... A film production company by CBS, the TV network. So an American company produced it, but it was shot in England with an English director, all British cast, British crew. This is very much an English movie. Decidedly a UK well, movie. Well, then let me, let me going on that, mm-hmm. tell you that these performances, and maybe this is the cultural difference, these performances are right in line with the British sensibility of comedy, you know, to, to a great degree, there's that, it, it feels very kind of, it, there are parts of this where it feels like a stage production mm-hmm. and it feel there's a hint of, um, the not vaudeville, but that kind of performance where it's broad, it's big, it's, uh, going for, you know, the music hall. That was the word I was looking for. The music hall in England was a, was a British vaudeville. And, having grown up around British people, that is very familiar to me. Sure. I just think that a lot of vaudevillian, or rather a lot of broad music hall comedy, doesn't adapt to film very well. There are exceptions to that, like the Marx Brothers adapt to film weirdly smoothly, um, at least as characters and as performances, um, even though in terms of story structure, they, they always kind of struggled to fully transition in a way that, that totally worked, in my opinion. Um, we'll talk about the Marx Brothers in another episode, I'm sure. Uh, I think uh, I'm a big fan. Are you a big fan? I'm a massive fan. Yeah, both of us big fans of the Marx Brothers. I, I, I've got... Which then made the Animaniacs very easy to love. <laughs> sure, of course. Um, exactly. I mean, I've got a Blu-ray set and a DVD set covering a different bunch of Marx Brothers movies. So I, I dig the vaudeville thing to a point. But then I've even seen this done on stage with very similar takes on these characters. And it still doesn't totally work. I appreciate that, you know, for its time, there hadn't been quite as many adaptations as there have been by now, even though there had been a bunch. But this one, particularly for the character of Ebenezer Scrooge, tries to do something a little different. Um, but then there's also the question of when you've got performances that work really well, 
then the new one actually has to stand on its own two feet, and it has to, even if it's a very different take, it has to be able to compete with the others, and in this particular role, I feel like Albert Finney is punching way above his weight. Way above his weight, and really cannot handle this character, or just doesn't have a great take on it. For what it's worth, most critics at the time did like this take on Scrooge, especially because this is the, the unusual thing about this, the gimmick for this movie, is that Finney, who was only 33 at the time, is playing both the young version and the old version of Scrooge, which is very unusual. Yes. That's this movie's kind of whole gambit, is we're going to try to let a younger actor take on an older part. And I think he's out of his league, and in, I don't know why Citizen Kane keeps coming up in this episode, because this movie is not Citizen Kane, but it clearly is interested in that same idea of trying to use old age makeup and young makeup to allow for one person to play a character across his lifespan. And I appreciate the attempt to do that, kind of, to a point. I don't think it's necessary, and I don't think it works, and I know that it looks like the main critic who agreed with me that Finney's take on this is weird was um, Pauline Kael. Um, so I feel a little bit justified, but it is... It's odd that this movie then has this split brain thing going on where on the one t on the one hand it's doing sort of a cartoonish thing where Albert Finney's take on Scrooge really does feel like a young person's impression of an old man to me. It feels like this is how a high schooler would try to play an old man for the part, which is different well, from I someone who already is old and can just embody that and then go on to give just a good performance without trying to without trying to perform a character while also trying to trick an audience into thinking you're much older than they are or than you are. And I think that having the two tasks at once really does not serve Finney very well in this. But while it's doing the uh, more uh, theatrical take, if you will, certainly the more vaudevillian take, uh, it is at the same time trying to be sort of a realistic movie in that they fully reconstructed actual old London sets which is why I thought it was the same sets from Oliver, because I think they reconstructed the same spaces for that film as well, even though, from what I can tell, this was two totally different studios, did not share sets. There, I think, are a couple years between the movies, but it, it doesn't matter. The point is, this is from an era in which the movie musical is trying to say, no, 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 we're not that fun, fun and fancy free stuff that you're used to. We're not going to give you uh, uh, singing in the rain. No, 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 no. No color. No, no, no. This is going to be gritty realism like you like in the new Hollywood era. Like, this is clearly paving the way to something like Cabaret. And I don't understand why a movie is trying to do the dark, gritty realism thing while it is a light, fun, hopeful, fantastical musical with ghosts and uh, a giant, jolly Santa Clausy man. <laughs> and um, I, I don't get it. It's, it well, seems a little confused. Well, for me, I think what's interesting about the sets is seeing, and and maybe there could be more tone in the old Victorian uh, sets, but what was stunning to me is when they went to Christmas Present, that set is just, I think, gorgeous from a set design standpoint. I think it's it just, it has what you would picture, at least the British version of Christmas, which is all this food and gold and silver. And, you know, I think it's just, I think whoever designed those sets is just, did such a beautiful job 
um, at crafting what that that set looks like. Oh, you mean the one that has the Ghost of Christmas present or present? Yeah, yeah. Christmas present. Right. Uh, um, uh, well, I just didn't know if you were talking about that scene or something later with the Cratchits or whatever. Um, no, but no, yes, it's Christmas true. When you present. walk in and see all the gold, it's like, oh wow, that is a very good looking shot. This is a well decorated set. It is severely underserved by the fact that this is just not a very good take on the Ghost of Christmas Present. It's it's really a kind of a bad take in which he doesn't feel... I know he's portrayed as quite tall in this, but he's kind of a tall, langy guy. Traditionally, he's more big. He's Santa Clausy. He's uh, supposed to be very, very... Not not necessarily fat, I don't think, is is necessarily part of his traditional portrayal. But in this, at times, he just seems sort of stern and angry, like he's just the tall schoolmaster who's scolding Scrooge. And it's like, we've had enough of the scolding by this point. I just want this guy to be totally fun and jolly and very, very ho-ho-ho and uh, and just big. And instead, here's a, a, a sort of a mean, tall man. Well, what I see with that is... He is the schoolmaster teaching the student about what the Christmas spirit is. Because if you look, when Scrooge okay. takes the drink of, of, of human, what was it? Human the milk spirit, of human kindness. Yeah, the milk of human kindness. There was a, gen, there was a gentler aspect to the character. Yeah. And so, unfortun- unfortunately, when you have a stern character that's stern, and then you meet another stern character, it might have done better, I think, with a bit of space in between seeing Scrooge stern and this character being stern. So I think this episode has been a little bit difficult for me because I was kind of hoping that you and I would come into this and be able to just have a good laugh about how ridiculous this movie is. And instead you're here for it. And I'm the only one who's like, (laughs) did you see Alec Guinness flapping his hands and flying up as Jacob Marley? I wanted to talk about that, that the movement Alec Guinness was trying to perform. Mm hmm. I recognize from old British training, which okay. is embody the, the spirit of who you are and, you know, move, you know, okay. it's like an old acting exercise. Sure. I don't think it worked in this. No, uh, most of what Alec Guinness is doing in terms of his movements do not work. Like, I get that he's trying to portray yeah. that he's carrying chains around, but I'm just looking at this. Uh, first of all, when I was watching it, I did not remember that it was Alec Guinness. I was totally yeah, I unconscious I didn't know who it was either. It left my brain, and only today was I looking through the credits like, oh my gosh! Like, that was right in front of my face, and I didn't I didn't get it, but like, ah, uh, uh, what is he doing? Like, every, every little thing with his hands, every dialogue delivery, everything he does with his face. I like a lot of the special effects, though. That's the flip side, is that this movie has yeah. some crazy good visual effects. The door knocker effect works. The ghost yeah. carriage works. Um, the, uh, what are the other ones? Like, later when the, it's the ghost of Christmas present, and uh, who's on the other side of the door, and the door just starts yeah. glowing. Like, mm-hmm. glowing white. It's like, I these thought are that great went, effects. So well. I mean, I, I wish. I just, I wanted to tell you that there are parts of this that I go, ugh. Oh, thank goodness. I know what they were going for. The other part is the uh, the devils in hell with the giant yes. chain. Yes. Oh, let's like, Those talk are about just the people. devil. Like, you can definitely tell there's a certain point at which they ran out of money or they didn't know when they started making this movie that they were going to add that scene. Because, again, that's not a normal scene. Like, this isn't yeah. normal for Christmas Carol oh, to take Scrooge you, you to hell. You don't see hell. 
You never see hell in A Christmas Carol. It doesn't, it, the, the crazy, it, ah. First, it doesn't even make sense for the character of Jacob Marley because at the, Marley's whole thing is he's like, look, I'm gonna level with you. I'm not sure whether or not I'm supposed to be here telling you this. I probably shouldn't do this, but since you're my friend, let me let you know, we screwed up. It's too late yep. for me, but I'm gonna do you a favor right now. I know it doesn't feel like it's a favor, but you have messed up your life. It's going to cost you. Let me help you get back on track, okay? Well, here's Just, the, here's the then, other thing that I don't... The, he's, I feel like he's kind of be, supposed to be... Like, yes, he's supposed to be scary. Yes, he's supposed to be intimidating. And yes, even kind of angry and stern with Scrooge. Again, another Scrooge... Uh, another stern character scolding Scrooge. Another stern Scrooge scolder. Yes, but he's also go. still the friend which makes it weird for him to be the villainous figure in hell at the end, who's like, and now you're going to serve as my servant for my evil hellish bookkeeping. <laughs> no, 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 you got it wrong. Satan, he's Satan's bookkeeper. And I was like, I would love to have seen what Satan looked like. Yeah, I, th I really thought that the line was, you are go going to now serve the job to me that Marley served to you, uh, that uh, uh, Cratchit served you, Cratchit, under you. Yeah. No, but I thought it was to the devil. They well, talk the, about Satan. Know Satan, Satan chose this job, though. That's the idea. Yeah. Satan so chose I'm like, this job for... I wanted to see what the devil is. This is such a trippy scene. I know. The, like, it, it what is, does the devil look like? And this is kind of what the, one of the main things that fascinates me about people liking this telling of the story. It's the telling that adds hell, for one thing, which is a bold and wild choice when I feel like you've already sold in the whole Ghost of Christmas Future thing, like, it goes badly for Scrooge. They've already sold it, and I think the story is a bit stronger when you leave a little bit of mystery to what's the afterlife going to look like for you. And here, they actually give you two competing versions of the afterlife because they add the little, like, 30-second mini-musical number when Marley takes Scrooge up into the air, like they fly out the window and yes, are with the spirits that in the was sky. Weird. And they're like, yep, all of us spirits in hell are just kind of doomed to fly around the earth forever. And then later, they're like, okay, so also and at the same time, we're going to be in hell. A different location where we will also spend eternity. And somehow the writers of the movie didn't really see the conflict there. But then the, the other side of that is you get this great set for hell. That's such a cool take. I know. I mean, my brother, so joked, my brother joked, wait, he dies and goes to Fraggle Rock? I didn't think that's how the afterlife worked. <laughs> but it's true. It's like a really hot Fraggle Rock. And then talk I about the demons. I have a religious question. And this is, okay. I don't know if you can answer this or whatever. So, mm -hmm. Let's say that that is the ultimate outcome for Scrooge. Okay, He's going to sure. get those chains. Okay, let's assume that that happens. Mm -hmm. Okay? And he dies at this point in the movie. Okay? Hmm. okay? Which would mean then that, in theory, going forward, he's still going to get those chains when he dies. They just, so links won't be added onto it. So my question is, why is this such a joyful movie? Okay, so it depends on what version of Christianity you follow, but the idea is that he still has the opportunity to not even go to hell. He has the opportunity to go to heaven instead. Oh, so is this like that Family Guy episode of they break in to see Osama bin Laden and he said, I accept, my Lord, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and he gets into heaven? 
Um, I haven't seen that. It's shocking that you uh, have that episode memorized as well as you do. Um, I, I, I don't really know that's that show kind of very what it well, sounds but like. that is the concept. Yes. Okay. Okay. That is, not I mean, it's, set, not it, you, commenting kind of, bad or good. I'm just trying to understand it. But again, there are so many different takes in Christianity on how heaven and hell work. And this movie's take is decidedly different from the from almost any actual Christian canon, which is why it's so weird that this is so popular with Christians in America uh, and with Christians around the world, from what I can tell. Like, this isn't how the afterlife... It's sort of the same thing with our town. It's like it has its own take on how the afterlife works that is based on Christianity, but that is decidedly different because there ain't no ghosts in the Bible except the Holy Ghost. All right? Like, none of this stuff with the spirits isn't in there. No notion of the ghost of Marley being... Like, no, 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 that's all made up. That's not a Christian thing. And so it's kind of weird that he was even able to get away with this, and it's weird to bring in Christian elements. But the normal take that is sort of assumed by more uh, mainstream interpretations of Christianity is bad people go to hell, good people go to heaven. If you become a good person by the time you die, you get to go to heaven. Now, technically, if you're going scripturally, it's not just about being a good or bad person. It is particularly about uh, your commitment to or relationship with, depending on how people like to word it, uh, specifically Jesus Christ himself. And there is no conversion to Christianity anywhere in this story. There is simply him going from being a mean person to being a nice person. And it, it, is, it is sort of a question of, is the idea that those chains are taken away right? because he undoes the bad things and instead maybe earns uh, treasures in heaven, uh, which is a biblical concept. So it is odd. Um, but then I, I thought you were going to talk about the demons in hell because I love the set design in hell. I, I love the concept of him being the only person who's chilly in hell right. because he never put coal in the brilliant. fire. So now that's his fate. But then, but the devils are—they are, they are um, uh, uh, shirtless men, just yeah. shirtless men with masks on, uh, and they are very oily. Like I get the idea is they're supposed to be covered in sweat because they're in hell. Yeah. But my See, brother I just saw and I them looking as at this like, like oh that my old school. I saw them as that old school uh, executioner, right? Where with you know, I I didn't see them as devils, and I was like, I thought it was an interesting take. I just didn't see because he Alec Guinness kept referring to devils, devils, and here they right. come, and I'm like, they're just men. Like I was ex right, I was expecting to see people in in some sort of red makeup and red costumes, and instead it is that weird fusion of the executioner. And just some guy from a porno who's been covered in baby oil. <laughs> like, they're just covered in baby oil. Oh. They're shiny. The like, references you, in this episode, we've gone from one spectrum to the other. Did you see? Uh, did uh, did <laughs> you ever see the uh, Disneyland sing-along videotape? No, I didn't. Okay. I'm interested to hear where you go with this. Just because there's an infamous shot in that that's a close-up on the face of uh, Malef uh, Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty okay. that everyone okay. remembers being scarred by because not only was it just a scary performance of a scary-looking character, but her face was weirdly soaking wet. Like, it's really? so wet and oily, and it's just, it's stuck with all of, all of us who grew up with it. It's a common thing for wow. theme park fans to talk I've, about, I've, and this immediately took me back to that. The one part, though, that I thought was really well done was, and it's it's a very quick moment, is when he goes to see uh, the future 
and he sees all these people happy about him and he doesn't understand why okay. and then the coffin comes out and he looks the other way mm-hmm. yeah. i was like that was so well done from, and this a, from is, a choreography standpoint this is one of the main reasons i wanted to talk about this movie because it is weird that this movie by and large did not have a good soundtrack as far as i'm concerned i think most of these songs are forgettable it is crazy that this is a musical that community theater keeps coming back to because it just doesn't have any other choice other than Babes in Toyland. Like, the the the, the, the community theater community is nuts. I don't know if you have any experience with community oh, theater. Oh, yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is one of those weird things where every single year, with the exception of 2020 because of the pandemic, they go, okay, what are our options for doing a Christmas show? And you've got only a handful. You can do Babes in Toyland, which is not a good show. You can do Scrooge the Musical based on a relatively obscure movie, making it a weird adaptation, but everyone knows the story, or do something totally different and out there, like uh, I once saw a production of It's a Wonderful Life. It was a d- the movie, not done as a musical, just as a play. And you might okay. think, what is the added value of this? Why do it on stage? The answer is, I have no idea. I don't think it added anything. But the production that I saw was one of the most interesting shows I have ever seen in my life. Because the director had this crazy idea that since everyone loves the original classic Black and White, It's a Wonderful Life, not the colorized version. Nobody wants to see the colorized version of It's a Wonderful Life. I've never seen the colorized version. Nobody wants to. You want to see the original Black and White version of It's a Wonderful Life. So she decided they would do the play in black and white, meaning all the characters put on gray makeup, grayed their hair, wore gray clothes, gray or black, basically. All the sets had to be on the grayscale spectrum. Wow. And it looked horrific. Because they all just looked like zombies. And the joke became, (laughs) we just watched a production of It's a Wonderful Afterlife. Uh. It was a zombified version of It's a Wonderful Life, and it was the weirdest thing. And we had, we had like my, uh, this was years ago, so my dad's cousin was visiting. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Clarence, Clarence, I need brains. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Um, We we had my dad's cousin with us, and we found out before we went to see the show, because he was just visiting, right? He just happened to be coming to town. Wait, I got one more, 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 okay, okay. Daddy, when you hear a bell, that means an angel's gotten brains. Okay. The crazy thing is, at the the same theater, I think in the same year, I saw a production of Night of the Living Dead that was in color. Oh my god! <laughs> and literally, the reason why they couldn't do that 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 show with much of the black and white makeup was because they're like, well, we're already doing one this year. We're doing It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> but we had my dad's cousin with us to see uh, the It's a Wonderful Life show. And we found out before the show started, this was his first time ever seeing a play. Like this oh. was his first experience was with theater was people <laughs> made up as zombies performing It's a Wonderful Life. I'm so Life. sorry. And afterwards we're like, so how was it? What, what do you think of theater? And he's like, it's okay. Oh my gosh. Okay. But as far it gets as better. This, this adaptation is, is nuts because for the musical adaptation, they add one interesting thing. One interesting thing that is not in the movie and that is not in any other take that I know of. And it concerns the ghost of Christmas past, which they just felt was a little too random and didn't leave enough of an impact. And they're particularly mm-hmm. interested in the scenes in which Scrooge sees his younger 
his, his, so. his sister. Because Scrooge sees a sister who died and the ghost of Christmas passes. Like, why do you never spend any time with her son? Like, you should spend time mm. with your family. And I'm not used to takes on this story that emphasize the fact that he once had a very good relationship with his sister and he had a friend there. And then he let that shows him letting his family relationships fall apart because normally it just feels like he didn't really have a family when he was young. This movie right. emphasizes the importance of his family in his life. And just to put a button on it in the musical version at the end of the scene with the ghost of Christmas past before she leaves, she says, I'm surprised you haven't recognized me by now. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. I'm your sister. You didn't pick up on it because it's not in the movie. It's not in the book. And it doesn't make any freaking sense. <laughs> that the well, ghost of Christmas you, past you... is his sister? Why? For what purpose? It doesn't add it. And then he, she's all like, oh, there's so much I wish I could tell you. Uh, but I don't have time. I The other ghost has to clock in. Uh, union uh, regulations. I got to be out before the next ghost comes in. I got to go. But boy, do I wish we could catch up. And it's like. Why didn't you say something sooner, you ding-dong? What in the world well, is this? If you like that kind of a thing where it's you find out kind of the backstory I, I of don't. what's gone on. Go what? on. I don't, but go on. Okay, well, I would suggest um, FX, the channel, they're a Christmas uh, carol with Guy Pierce. Interesting. Because what, what they do is they show in a very more gritty, realistic way what made this man as angry and bitter as he was? And what I will tell you is it's in connection with the, the church's child sex abuse scandal. That is a version of the story that's very creative, but I would never, ever want to see it. And, and I think what it does, it adds a very... And that's fine. I'm just saying, if, you, if that's the kind of thing you're interested in, it, it gives a sense of the damage power and corruption can can cause down the generations right and I, I think that's it's an interesting idea to use this story as a way of talking about that um but i, I realized I, I lost track of what i was going to say about the the stage productions because as i always wondered like why does a movie with such a mediocre soundtrack have a staying power and get done as a stage show over and over and why are people watching it on television every year and insisting this is really good and then you get to this number thank you very much Yes. Which, you know, there are, I, I kind of like the opening chorus with the sing a song of Christmas. And I, I kind of like uh, the waltz where they're singing about happiness, kind of. Um, there are little bits of music here and there that I, I'm kind of into and that I think are, are fine. But then you get to thank you very much. And as you said, the blocking is incredible. It's so stunning. It, and and it's, it's like the darkest number. And my brother yeah. and I both misremembered it because we thought Thank You Very Much was a song being sung at uh, Fezziwig's party where they're just thanking everyone oh, for okay. coming. We thought it was light. And then we're like, wait, it happens here? You're telling me Thank You Very Much is not sincere. It is a subversion. Yeah. Of of they they uh, take of, of, I mean it's 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 so dark that they're that the every it's everyone in the town every like huge crowds of people yeah thanking like, Scrooge I tell for you, dying. If you've never choreographed in your life, try doing it with one other person. This number is like I don't know. There must have been like a hundred people in this scene, but it, even it still, like even it. beyond that, the whole idea of of taking an upbeat, happy song mm -hmm. and putting it on the death 
of yep. this like hated character. And again, I will go back to it. It's a very difficult thing to do of having one thing happen, a person look away and another thing come out behind them. Cause at, at a certain yeah. point, and I Scrooge doesn't see what they're happy about. Right. They don't see that this one guy is literally dancing on the grave of him. Right. And, and, and I was like, is, it is so well done. And, and this is where I think this movie kind of has its galaxy brain moment. This is why it, it got the nominate the Oscar nom for best original song. Right. Because yeah. for the most part, again, this take on, on the character of Scrooge for the most part does not work for me. I do not think it is a very good take. And then you get to this one scene where it's like, this is exactly the take that you want. This poor old fool thinks his right. future's looking great. Because I uh, normally, the, the ghost of Christmas future, it's like he's the most scary, intimidating figure. And he immediately is like, look at the Cratchits. One of them died. Look at I yourself. Know. You died. And there's not much more to it than that. It's so brilliant to have this terrifying ghost of Christmas future take him to the happiest number in the movie where like yeah. you, as soon as it starts playing I'm bouncing up and down like <laughs> I, I know all the characters are bobbing this, this I can't get the song out of my head I know it's always like after mom after my mother was in a production of it it was like a year where anytime someone said thank you she would go Thank you very much. I know, Thank you very I know. much. That's the nicest thing. And we're like, stop it, mom. And then she'd walk away and we're like, that's the nicest thing that I've I know. ever done. Like, it is the most if, infectious song. It makes you dance. Uh, like, it makes you get up on your feet. It makes you move. It's great. Like if for nothing else, watch the movie up to that point. I mean, I know it's right at the end, but still that it's, one it's, scene is worth watching uh -huh. the movie for. And like for me, like for me, I would like if we're going to rate this, JD. Okay. If, if we're going to rate this and I'm trying to think, cause I don't think the traditional way that we do it was in the canon of canon of canon of is going to work with this. I with think on what? a scale of one to remember, like in the, in the canon of Christmas movies oh, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. animated uh, movies, that kind of thing. What I think we should look at this as in the musical, the, the uh, sort of, of that time period, the movie musical of that time period. Okay. Where would you place this? Pretty friggin' low. Because okay, on a scale I, of one to ten, one being the worst. Uh, can well, we use one to five worst. because it'll match up with oh, right, most yeah, movie one to rating five. systems? I, yeah. I know you're used to one to ten because of your family in, in the medical field, but let's. I, I think one to five is more standard for movies. One to five. One to five. One um, to five. It's it's tough because again, this is weird because it's falling between two different eras. It is falling between the Sound of Music era and the Cabaret era. I love the sound of music to death. I do not like cabaret. I generally dislike the trend in film away from the bright, fun, colorful stuff towards the dark, gritty realism thing. I think that there is, uh, maybe this actually is kind of an intelligent choice for a movie to be like, here's how you can still get the fun, hopeful musical that you like that is kind of joyful at times in an environment that manages to be the dirty realism while also being... Christmassy and and pretty looking at the same time. Again, as I, I think that at times leads to confusion in the film, but at times is the film's strength that it's trying to uh, have that balance. I think for me, if you compare it to something like The Sound of Music from just a few years before, um, or West Side Story, or or whatever, uh, this is about eh, a two to two and a half out of five. 
Um, I say that with the understanding that a lot of musicals uh, of the classical Hollywood period are overrated. There's kind of this general sense that that's the era when musicals were great and musicals are bad now. And it's like, well, yes, musicals are usually bad now, but they're kind of bad uh, for different reasons. I, I think that the of the Rodgers and Hammerstein stuff, I have a, a DVD set of Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals behind me, and I know I'm going to watch a bunch of those, and I'm dreading it because I've seen many of them, and I know they're not good. Like, they, quite frankly, they don't have a very good sense of story structure, and every now and again you get a real banger in the soundtrack, and a lot of it is kind of weak. Um, but even still, I, I think that this is kind of, in a way, another fairly weak musical that is making an odd transition in an awkward way that doesn't totally work for me. And I think a great musical has to have a great soundtrack, and this has one great song. And I want to give it all the credit in the world for its one great song, uh, but that one great song is giving it like two out of its two and a half star rating. Okay, here's my here's my number. Okay. One. If, if I look okay. at it, putting the emotion out of it, from a musical standpoint, I would rank it very low. Okay. I don't... I, I, we're in agreement with that. I think it, it. there are a lot of things lacking with this movie that will put it in the great pantheon of mu- movie musicals. Now It's never going to make it in the pantheon. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's never going to make it in said, the pantheon. Yeah. That being said, there is a ton of this creatively that I applaud them for and that I love. You know, like the set design with with various aspects of it, that musical, the staging of that number. I think we keep coming back to the number, so that might be the primary reason. But I think if you go in looking at this, if I was to advise someone, I would say go in looking at it as an abstract art version of A Christmas Carol. I would definitely tell people to almost do the opposite and see this as sort of a precursor to the kind of movie musicals that would eventually be Oscar bait in the 2000s, like Les Mis, where it's like, here you are, the dirty streets, not trying to treat it too much like a musical in a normal conventional sense, um, but just trying to do a portrait of Dickensian in London in this time period and an interesting portrait of the story, even if it doesn't totally work as a musical. Listeners out there, you have two different ways to look at this. Again, I look at him very differently than JD, and that's what I think makes this a very strong podcast. Um, I'm, that's I, why really I, like us, about, I really want us to agree on a movie at some point. I'm we really, will. We will. I know, we're waiting for the point where I can show you something you've never seen before, or you can show me something I've never seen before, and both of us are like, this is amazing. Or both of yep. us go, this is hilariously bad. Because we yep. keep finding little points where we're like totally in agreement. Again, Thank You Very Much belongs in everybody's Christmas playlists, even though yep, the soundtrack to this movie is virtually impossible to find. Good luck. But you can you only have find two other... versions. You yeah. have two different reviews. So watch the movie. Let us know what you think in but the your, comments. What's your overall looked... rating of this, one to five? My, my overall rating is one. I thought you liked it. You came into this saying you were having I, no, fun. That's what I said. That's what I said. If I step back and look at it sort of from like your perspective, it's a one. No, like, but, I can't disagree academically on anything. But ratings are also about enjoyment. They're also about okay. does this have good entertainment value? And All right. were you entertained? Were you not then. entertained? Entertainment value on a scale of one to ten. Or uh-huh. one to five. One sure. to five. One to five. One to five. One to five. Yes. 
Um, I would put this at a four. So then I think that your rating is about a three. That's true. The average is about a three. Or, or a little less, somewhere in between. Yeah. Um, so we're in about the same. I think both of us kind of figure this is like a two and a half mediocre with some strong elements and some weak elements. Yeah. And it's something that, again, it's something that kind of demands your attention. Because it's a weird yeah. thing that happened to musicals and a weird thing that happened to community theater. A weird thing that happened to Christmas. In fact, the, the tagline for this movie on the poster was, what the dickens have they done to Scrooge? <laughs> and oh and i will I say think... i will say mm -hmm. if you are going to watch this and you partake in the devil's lettuce do not do that while you watch this movie it will scare you to death that hell scene is trippy enough you don't need help maybe Maybe that's what the movie should be about. Maybe instead of doing a Christmas Carol in the future, they're like Scrooge's problem is he's addicted to drugs. Ah. The ghosts are going to show him why and help that him. That would explain off a lot of it. I don't. I, I mean, no, that shouldn't be the movie because it's a little too war on drugs. Whereas I'm much more of a you know legalize it kind of guy. But still, someday maybe there'll be a totally different take that's just radically different from everything we think we know about Scrooge. But until then, please let us know what you think of this movie uh, in comments or on Twitter or wherever you can. Uh, folks, it's been a fun one. It's been a weird one. It has it's been. been a fun one. Uh, <laughs> join us next week for our episode on The Big Chill. That's right. We're keeping it cold. Keeping it cold for the winter months. We're keeping it cold. It's yep. going to be chilly. It's going to be chilly. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at JD11PC. And you can follow me at Nicholas Lemon. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Nick, would you like to close the show by reminding us who you are, what your name is? All right. I'm Nicholas Lemon. I'm J.D. Hansel, and I was dead to begin with. Okay. I think that's good. Perfect. All right. Uh, All right. I'm going to... Do you want to stop recording or keep it going? Uh... The one scene that I felt could have used some more some more gravitas or anger or whatever word you want to put in there is the scene between Scrooge and the donation men near right. the beginning. Yeah. I was like, it would have been nice to see some actual venom from him at right, that point. Because I, I definitely feel like this is a that's a scene that is gonna kind of set the tone for the Scrooge and define the whole thing like you look at the way that Alistair like I would just recommend just looking at how Alistair Sim does that scene because yeah. it's like whoa and if you do and, and yet he still does it kind of calmly like he's very quiet about it but you get the sense that he's just there's no stopping this man there's no changing this man this is who he is um, here in this it's it's just like uh, if I were that charity collector as soon as he opened his mouth I'd be like Never mind. I'll, I'll go knock on the next yeah. door. This isn't worth it. I think well, an interesting way to handle the character now would definitely be to have him be like some online libertarian who's like, why should I have to do anything for other people? If they're poor, they deserve it. Like actually go ahead and, and make it yeah. like the annoying podcaster who believes the poor deserve to be poor and have that person change their ways. That's how you would do it now, but it would be seen as very political. Whereas this movie yeah. that can be seen as sort of anti-capitalist in a way, is, or this whole story can be seen that way, uh, in any adaptation, it's generally regarded as totally apolitical, family-friendly, non-political, open to everybody. Which, it's very Christian-based, though, if you look at it. Sure, yeah, absolutely. The story is very Christian-based, and it's neither good nor bad in my eyes. It's just, it, it's a very, very Western view 
of I get, what what yeah. charity and goodwill is. And it is definitely a big question of like, okay, so what does being a good person have to do with liking this particular Christian holiday? Like that's sort of arbitrary. Like it's and it's a recurring thing in Christmas movies that the bad person is someone who doesn't like Christmas. The good person likes Christmas, and those things are equated to each other. They necessarily go together. And that's questionable. But on the other hand, it's kind of more so like defining what the spirit of Christmas is as a spirit of goodwill and giving, which is something that is maybe kind of lost on us now, because now the act of giving a present to someone at Christmas means you buy a present from a company that is manufacturing this present in bulk in order to make a profit, and you give that to someone as a gift on your dime, as opposed to uh, the society that you see here, where which you know still certainly had a market to it. It definitely has a lot of uh, capitalist elements in it, but it's more like the baker for Christmas is giving away free baked goods. The toy maker is giving away free toys. Like it's the person who does the labor who is in a place to freely give the fruits of their own labor, which is a different conception of Christmas than the one we have now. And so it's weird that this story still lands in a totally different economic context. Well, what's interesting, I don't know if this is a bit off topic. Well, it's British, but British Christmas. Have you heard what the royal family does for Christmas gifts on in 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 the UK? No. Okay, so this so apparently Christmas is the immediate family. So when when Prince William and Kate at that point Kate, now Catherine, was engaged she was not allowed to attend because she is not married into the family. You can only be either blood related or spouses or grandchildren, that kind of thing. And so the first time she went, she was nervous about like, what do you give a monarch? I mean, oh, yeah. it's her mother-in-law when she was married. Like, what do you give them? Right. And so she, I guess they learned from Diana, which is, you know, maybe warn people coming in on what you're supposed to, give them okay because Catherine finally found out but when diana was first coming in she bought like uh i think princess anne like this like gold emerald and ruby brooch and all this mm-hmm. well what Catherine said is she was told by william and that they don't do that hmm. the rule on christmas when it's christmas and you're giving gifts to the immediate family it has to be homemade that's smart yeah, I mean, so it would, it, don't get me wrong. It would be a whole lot funnier if they're like, uh, this is a DVD copy of... Uh, uh, right. I was trying to think of like a dumb Adam Sandler comedy. Darn, I'm not fast yeah, yeah, enough. Yeah. I think... No, it, that's fine. Go ahead. But what... So what... I believe what, what Catherine said was she... Because I think her, her family has... Uh, or she's connected to some sort of jamming company. Hmm. And so she, she... I think she got them like the Queen and Philip like two jars of homemade jam or marmalade or something. And she said it was the strangest thing. They would, they would like homemade whatever. And she said, it's this very surreal feeling of, of being in Buckingham palace or Sandringham or wherever it was surrounded by this wealth. And they're like, here monarch, here's this. I made it for you. And I'm like, that is such a brilliant, um, that is such a brilliant Thing to do. I think so. I think the joke I should have made is a used DVD of Are We There Yet? Um, I think that's the thing. You want to back up so you can put that nope. in? Nope. We're not going to do it because okay. this is a, a postscript. It doesn't count. Nothing we say here counts. Okay. Nothing we say here matters. Insert political joke here. <laughs> 